You heard you could save big when you bundle home and auto with Progressive, so you went online to check it out. But then you saw a link for a survey about which type of bread you are. And now you're on question 17, barely scratching the surface of your bread identity. You always thought of yourself as a brioche, but are you actually more of a pumpernickel? Ah, yes. They said it was easy to save money bundling with Progressive, but they forgot about the rest of the Internet. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company affiliates and other insurers. Bundle discount not available in all states or situations. HD Smartcast. You are listening to a Mint production brought to you by HD Smartcast. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another edition of Capital Calculus, the show which focuses on the intersection of politics and economics, something that is critical in democracies like India, especially in influencing what the little guy gets or does not get. Every week, this show will explore this intersection to try and give you a fresh perspective on the week that was. I'm your host, Anil Padmanabhan. New numbers show the Indian economy is recovering, slowly though, and unevenly at that. Further, the revival is occurring mostly in sectors like automobiles, real estate, and consumer durables, most of which reflect the consumption pattern of the top income percentile of the population. But what about those at the bottom of the pyramid? Unfortunately, for now, the recovery is eluding them. Yet, theirs is not a story often told. Yes, fleeing migrants did briefly put the spotlight on their fate. But that was just the tip of the iceberg. In the last seven months, many have fallen back into poverty, swelling the ranks of the new poor. Worse, many have had to liquidate their assets. 10.4 million salaried workers have dipped into their retirement savings so far, withdrawing nearly rupees 40,000 crore in five months. How will all this stack up, especially with respect to inequality? Exactly why I spoke to Bina Agarwal. She is the former director of the Institute of Economic Growth. At present, she is a professor of development economics and environment at the University of Manchester and a domain expert on inequality. I began by asking her about who bore the brunt of this unprecedented economic shock. Well, in this, this pandemic has been so wide ranging that a vast number of people have been impacted. Firstly, those who, were in, who have lost jobs. So if you take the migrant workers returned home during the lockdown, there's been huge amounts of landlessness. Secondly, women have been impacted. And third, um, children um, who now have to uh, stay at home and catch up with their studies without the necessary means for that. Um, and all of these categories would be already people who are in a precarious situation economically, uh, even prior to the pandemic. Obvious question then, will the migrants get back their jobs soon? Well, you, we have some interesting analysis that was done uh, recently. I saw a paper by Ashwini Deshpande, and she looked at CMIE data, uh, which uh, they have been doing uh, longitudinal studies. Uh, and they looked at the situation in April and found that it had hugely reduced employment, both for men and women. And now uh, in August, there has been a degree of recovery uh, particularly for men, much less for women. But the recovery has simply been in terms of 
now they say they are reporting themselves as employed. What it doesn't capture is what is the intensity of work and what are the earnings. So simply saying that we have recovered in employment will not mean that um, in, in terms of their ability to be food secure or in otherwise secure is guaranteed. Presumably, this would have increased the number of new poor. I asked Bina if she agreed. Absolutely. I mean, firstly, we have broad estimates which show that many, many millions more will join the ranks of the extreme poverty. And as you know, large numbers of our poor, in any case, hover around the poverty line. So if there's any kind of crisis, not even a pandemic, but suppose you have a person in the household who falls ill, you slip below the poverty line. And this has impacted on a much larger scale entire families. So I expect uh, there to be huge increases in in poverty. Now, you know, when people say, uh, will they recover? I think the concept of resilience is very important because um, there are people who might get back their jobs to an extent. Some of the self-employed may get back to work, but there will be um, large numbers of enterprises and the workers who work on those enterprises, which would have been crippled and will not have the resilience to uh, come back. In that case, the scarring can be potentially permanent for some segments of those at the bottom of the pyramid. We know of the concept of the working poor. So if you're poor, you can't afford not to work. And the numbers of the working poor are likely to increase because unless the economy picks up and jobs increase, you're just going to have more and more people who will be working for an hour or two. Even if you take something like uh, um, Narega, uh, the and I was looking at the figures, the total number of work days haven't picked up to the last years. Although we know that uh, many of the people who had returned as migrants, as well as those who are rural households who need jobs, uh, have been using uh, Narega. And what's also interesting and important to recognize is that there is there could be a crowding out. So, uh, for instance, um, it it is one of the um, most important sources of employment, a guaranteed employment uh, for women um, in poor households. Uh, and um, what I, looking at the figures recently, I found that from if you look at 1920 and 2021, uh, the proportion of uh, total work days, uh, women's work days, has gone down. Now, this seems to suggest uh, that there's, there's a, there is crowding out, even in Narega jobs. What about the cohort of women? How have they borne this economic shock? You know, when we much of the discussion around uh, the impact on women has been on uh, the increase in care work, the domestic work burdens, because you have more members in the household, uh, and on domestic violence. Uh, but I believe we have to look at women's livelihoods much more closely. And there are direct effects of a loss of livelihood, and there are indirect effects. So, for instance, the direct effect would be that you lose your earnings. There's been a lot of focus recently on domestic helps and how they have uh, large numbers of them were uh, had no longer any employment immediately after the shutdown. And even now, many of them have not been hired back. But women also work in construction, in urban areas, uh, and in a variety of other services. In rural areas, they work... Uh, primarily in agriculture. So 75% of rural women workers are in agriculture. 
much more dependent on agriculture than our men. Um, now, we don't have a clear sense. Uh, I know agriculture has done relatively better um, than any other sector. As you know, the green shoot was agriculture in the first quarter grew at 3.4%, whereas the uh, economy contracted by 23.9%. Um, but uh, what you do have is uh, the couple of actually good surveys, which have looked gone beyond um, employment uh, and livelihood uh, and you know jobs uh, to look at the indirect effects. And the indirect effects have been, um, you know, in rural areas, for instance, um, if you have returned migrants, the those households where the migrants return, um, the women are spending much more time fetching firewood and fodder in rural India. Uh, and you also have reports of food scarcity. Now, knowing that there are inequalities within the home in terms of inter-household sharing of food, where women need last and, uh, and least, uh, and also girl children, we would expect that uh, hunger is unequally shared uh, within the home. Equally worrying is the impact on children. The pandemic has forced schools to shut down. Students are now relying on online classes. This is exactly the rub. Not all students have online access. The just-released Annual Status of Education Report, or ASSER, makes a startling revelation. It shows that only little under a third of India's school children are accessing online education. Even fewer are able to take live online classes. What does this digital divide do to learning opportunities? I asked Bina. I think there are two issues here which are very important. One is that as uh, you, you also find in the ASA report that uh, there is um, a much lower enrollment. There's been a decline in enrollment, both for girls and boys, but particularly for girls. And uh, this is across different age groups. So for me, that is, itself is extremely bothersome that there are uh, children are not enrolling, uh, but also that they're not enrolling, not just at the primary state level, but at uh, multiple levels. And secondly, as you point out, uh, the digital divide is, is about internet access. It's, uh, you know, there is one divide, which is just about who has mobile phones and not. And on that, um, perhaps the differences, there are still differences. I was looking at some figures. This was about, again, about gender, but if they looked at rural and urban uh, adults, 2,000 of them in 2019, and found that 63% of women, 73% of men had mobile access. But mobile internet, 21% of the women, 42% of the men. Now, obviously, children uh, in richer homes will have their own mobile sets with internet. But in, in poor households, um, they might just have one mobile phone. And even if that has an internet um, and you have more than one child, then one or two of those children will suffer. And of course, as you know, uh, this has long-term implications because a one-year gap, um, uh, a, a child in a rich home may be able to catch up on. Uh, but a one-year gap in poor households where it is uh, still very difficult um, to keep children in school at, at, at upper levels can be quite devastating. Is it uh, fair to surmise that inequality in the economy would have worsened in this period? Oh, absolutely. Uh, absolutely. I mean, already uh, pre-pandemic, we know that uh, we have, uh, there's been huge inequalities in terms of the proportion of people um, who own most of the country's wealth. 
uh, and earn most of the country's income. So um, if you add to that, that large numbers of people don't have employment, even if they manage to come back to some semblance of employment, they're not earning very much. Poverty and inequality can't be separated quite in, in this context, because if you, as you, as you mentioned, if there is a whole category of new people who are poor, then they're also part of the, um, the segment which is at the bottom of the pyramid. So inequality is also simultaneously increased. To cushion the economic shock, people have started to dip into their savings, jeopardizing their future. Assets, I think, have a particular uh, meaning in the pandemic. So one of the things that you notice, suppose there's a crisis, and I've looked at, for instance, uh, context of seasonal, um, uh, if there's a drought or, or a famine-like situation, how do, how do people draw upon their assets? Now, those who have large assets um, may be able to survive. Those who have rather few assets uh, might be able to mortgage them. So land is a very good example that people tend not to um, uh, either sell or uh, mortgage out their land. The first thing that goes is large animals sometimes women's jewelry. And there are reports now of people uh, selling their mobile phone. The kind of asset you have to sell in a pandemic like this um, matters. If you sell your tools of trade, so suppose you are a vegetable vendor and you have to sell your cart, then you're not going to be able to be resilient enough to bounce, bounce back. So I think we need to think of asset ownership in a, in a, in a whole range of ways of those who are cushioned um, you know, fully, those who are cushioned partially because they have some assets that they can trade, and those who have absolutely no assets. And um, people, there are huge numbers of reports of people drawing on their savings, um, even provident funds. I mean, you have low middle class people drawing on their provident funds. So um, if they draw seriously on their savings, um, it has long-term implications because those savings were a kind of cushion for the future, which no, no longer exists. How do we then return people to their livelihoods? I feel that we need to really think outside the box here um, because we tend to normally think of people in jobs as atomized individuals, um, X number of people. Um, what I found very interesting, you know, I've been working on um, issues of collectives in rural India and especially group farming. Um, you know, the idea of group farming being that um, our farmers, as you know, are mostly very small. 86% of our farmers cultivate less than two hectares and many of them are non-viable. So um, I actually looked at cases where farmers pooled their land, labor, and capital to move from very tiny plots to a larger piece of land uh, on which they could have economies of scale and so on. And interestingly, um, and Kudumshri in Kerala is a very good example. It has 68,000 group farms, you know, with women of between anything between four to 10 uh, women uh, coming together and farming. I think about 50,000 plus who was farming in the early part of this year, 87% of them survived. And uh, even including vegetable growers, which are perishables, uh, they could find um, uh, partly local markets, but also they linked it with a relief effort in Kerala for the community kitchens. You are saying the power of the collective is particularly relevant and we should address that, address the social challenges or economic challenges through the power of the collective. 
I think so. You know, also what you're talking about is producing collective assets. So one is the power of the collective in terms of people coming together privately and being able to having more bargaining power with state and markets that we've talked about, uh, you know, in, in multiple contexts. Uh, but uh, here what I'm talking about is uh, community services. Um, we think of uh, drinking water as a as a community service. We have panchayat uh, headquarters and, and or you have panchayat um, you know, buildings. But do we think of those panchayat buildings as spaces uh, which could actually be used uh, in a more collective way? In the final analysis, two things are clear. There is despair. The rank of the neo-poor has swelled, no doubt. Worse, inequality too has spiked. But there is hope too. For that, as Bina points out, you have to embrace a new playbook. As they say, when the going gets tough, the tough get going. That's all for today. Thank you for listening. Hope you enjoyed this episode. Do share your feedback and ideas. You can reach me on Twitter at Capital Calculus or on Facebook and Instagram at HT Smartcast. I'll be back next week with a new episode of Capital Calculus. Till then, stay safe. This was a Mint production brought to you by HD Smartcast. HD Smartcast. What do millions of Americans and three former U.S. presidents have in common? They all agree that Bolin Branch sheets are the softest, most comfortable sheets in the world. Bolin Branch cotton is rain-fed, pesticide-free, and carries the highest organic certification. That's why it's so soft. Bolin Branch sheets start at just $160. They're $1,000 quality for a fraction of the price. Plus, you can sleep on them for a month, risk-free. That's B-O-L-L and Branch.com. Restrictions may apply. See BolinBranch.com for details.